So last time, we started talking about play and playfulness and humor as part of our practice. We talked about laughing at ourselves and just seeing the craziness of our minds and our hearts. We talked about laughing at the conditions of life. We talked about the way playfulness and even silliness can be a wonderful place of freedom and opening and experimentation. And we talked about meditation itself as a kind of play. It's kind of an experimentation with the present moment and opening to uh, a movement, uh, not being frozen in who we are or who we thought we were or who we thought we should be, but a willingness to sort of play and change and discover ourselves anew in each moment. And so we're going to continue to talk about that a bit today. And I think one of the things that's interesting about play, or about sort of the feeling of play, is the way that play can be connected on the one hand to silliness, to jokes, to sort of playfulness. And on the other hand, there can be something grand and almost majestic in play. Sort of the grand sweep. I sort of been thinking about it recently as I've been talking about this talk. It's sort of like the dance of the king. You know what I mean? That there's that dance we all engage in. There's sort of the dance of the king. There's something majestic. There's something wide. There's something beautiful about it. In um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, maybe an unusual text to quote in our class. <laughs> I don't go on Nietzsche that much. He says, a little reason to be sure. A little wisdom is possible indeed. But this blessed certainty I found in all things. They would rather dance on the feet of chance. O heaven over men, pure and high, that is what your purity is to me now, that there is no eternal spider web or spider web of reason, that you are to me a dance floor for divine accidents, that you are to me a divine table for divine dice and dice players. And it's that feeling of being a, a dance floor for divine accidents, rather than being caught in the spider web of reason. Play is that place of not knowing everything, not knowing all the answers, but knowing that there's a place of accident, of coming into being, of falling and getting up and tumbling and turning over, and that in that place is tremendous creativity and tremendous discovery. There's a tremendous courage in that kind of play. It's a kind of dancing over the abyss. It's the commitment. It's sort of that commitment. It's like the perfect attitude to sport. You know, it's that total commitment to victory, that reveling in the process, and the not caring when the final result happens, right? But you have to have the commitment, actually. It's what makes the passion and the engagement and the wonder possible. And it's how we should engage in that play and battle, which is Talmud Torah, which is the learning of Torah. It's that playfulness and majesty at the same time. In the Gemara in, in Psachim, it's a discussion, a quote, which comes up actually in a few places, which says, it comes to teach you the example they brought before, and it's, there's various uh, 
examples of this, that the Shekhinah does not rest on laziness, not on sadness, not on just silliness, but on the joy of a mitzvah. And then later down in the Sugya, they bring an example. He had the Rava. It's like Rava, who when Rava would teach, he would start by opening to the other rabbis with a joke, with a milta vidikuta. He'd open with a joke. And he'd joke to the rabbis, right? They'd have a laugh together. And in the end, he would sit in awe and open with his teaching. And start teaching. And I think it's such, it's such a beautiful and interesting text, that combination together. The first part is that the joy we're supposed to have is this joy of mitzvah, right? And so clearly the jokes that Rabbah is telling are not actually in contradiction to the joy of mitzvah. They're part of the joy of mitzvah, right? These jokes before Torah is part of the laughter and joy and playfulness of mitzvah. It's not something external. And then that joking, that laughter doesn't bring people to, you know, check out of the Beit Midrash or go have some beers, right? It actually brings them to the awe of Torah study itself. It opens them up to the majesty of the Torah, right in that laughter and that playfulness. And I think this notion of that, that joke, that laughter before study is really key. In the Tanya, the Balatanya says, Ken haomer milta bedichuta, to open his mind, really, to open his consciousness. And I think that's one of those key elements to that aspect of, of that playfulness. Can you say that again? Yeah. In Hebrew, you want to read the quote again? Or just, that it opens, it opens, like, like opening the eyes, right? But this is to open one's mind, right? So they tell the joke before the studying because it opens your mind, right? It opens your mind up. The playfulness, the challenge, the not seeing exactly how it's going to happen, the being caught up short, the laughter, right? It opens that place of creativity, experimentation, the willingness to see something new, the ability to have chidushim, right? That joking is that place of like shaking us out for the moment of whatever our normal, stable places and opening us up to something new, something creative. It helps us get rid of all those, you know, judgments, assumptions, all those places that hold down that opening of the mind. And this, of course, really, I mean, I think, you know, we don't know what happened in the ancient Beit Midrash, but my feeling is Rava's shita must have been quite common, because <laughs> if you look at rabbinic text, the playfulness and the imagination, the creativity is so clearly there, that willingness to play with the text and the deep majesty and awe in that play at the same time, right? Really having those two moments together. And so it's that dance of the king, really dance of the king of kings, right? That dance of divine accidents that we can all participate in, that sort of majestic playfulness. And when we have that attitude, then it's joyous, right? Then our learning, our experimentation, as the Merkaveta Mishnah says, why do they say the bidichot? So that the students will learn from joy. That there will be joy in their study, right? And there's great joy when we're willing to experiment, when we're willing to play, when we're willing to have that dance, which includes tripping and falling on our faces, 
right? That's the important part of the play, right? It's a dance where we don't know all the steps and we don't do them all right. And that's great, actually, because then a new step gets created just when we fall, right? It's like falling itself is an essential part of the process. And it's true in our practice as well. If we're like, back on focus, back on focus, back on focus, the intensity, there's no room actually for the playfulness, the imagination, the breadth of mindfulness to emerge. That's why there's always that dance. It's like, oh, we're there, we're focused, and we lose it. And oh, insight arises actually, all of a sudden, right when we lost it. It's not like we have to be focused 100% of the time. First of all, it's never going to happen, so don't worry about it, right? <laughs> but second of all, it's not even necessarily the most productive way to be. It's like, actually, we open that up, we get lost, and in that moment of getting lost, oh, insight, and then we come back, and we do it again, insight, and then we come back, right? And it's that process, the dance, and the getting lost in the dance, and the coming back to the focus in the moment of the dance. I was at a... Um, a conference recently on um, basically on positive psychology, some other elements. And um, one of the speakers, uh, Professor Haifa, was introducing, presenting some interesting studies on the way imagination um, and playfulness, sort of imagination, the development of imagination in kids and in adults, helps develop actually our mind. And there are studies which show that it demonstrates better problem solving, which is not that, you know, not that surprising when we hear it, right? It's like, oh, right. <laughs> we have imagination and we can sort of think outside the box and see things. Of course, there's going to be better problem solving. But often we think about the way that we're going to solve a problem or figure it out as if we're like totally serious, totally focused, totally there. And actually, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like because our mind goes off to the side, oh, then we see it. Something else comes out. We've got the insight. We've got a new way to go that we wouldn't have seen before. The Magid of Mezrich, in a really beautiful, beautiful imagery, uh, at the beginning of his work, Magid Dvarav Yaakov, talks about sort of God's love for us and that we're like little children sort of playing horsey, riding on the back of God. Right? God's like our father and we're like riding on the back of God. And it's this beautiful <laughs> image, right, of God playing with us. Like God is just playing with us in this incredibly loving way because it is God like coming down to our place and our level to just play with us, to play with us in great love and great affection and just great like silliness. It's like God loves it, right? <laughs> we're, we're playing mercy and God loves it. And this notion of sort of playfulness, it's interesting, I was thinking about this and I, I remember this, you know, important verse in Tehillim it says, Mara bu Hashem, kulam sita, How great are your works, God, you did them all with wisdom. The whole earth is filled with your, your creations. This is the great sea, wide of hands. There are various creatures, uncountable creatures, various little creatures and big creatures. There the boats go. The Leviathan, which you created to play with it, right? And it's this wonderful image because the Leviathan is the greatest of creatures, right? It's the great creature, the great monster. It's sort of the primordial creature. It's the creature which is going to be the sukkah, you know, over the righteous at the end times of creation, right? It's, this, it's the great creature. It's the great monster, which God created Dafka to play with it, right? It's that play of sort of majesty and 
and tremendousness and it happens, and I think it's interesting they sort of set a verses together. It's daf in Hayam Hagadol or right? It's in this majestic, open, beautiful space where the Leviathan has like all the space in the world, all the space in the world to play. And Hashem created him just to play with. Just to have that process, right? Of play, of diving, of, you know, the image of a dolphin, whatever your image is. That sort of completely open, shining, beautiful play. And of course it happens in that place of openness and boundlessness, the place of the sea, because it's in that place where we can feel that openness and possibility of life. It's that place which play actually helps us feel, that place of openness and experimentation and becoming somebody new for a moment. It's the childishness and the monstrousness together. It's the power of myth, right? And it's the power of play. And in all these ways, playfulness and play is really a kind of trust. It's a kind of deep experimentation and risk-taking, especially for us adults, right? It's not the normal mode that we're encouraged to be in, the place of playfulness and experimentation. And it's interesting, the, all the different ways we can use it, the way, for instance, sometimes we can sort of play other characters, the way our sense of play and experimenting with beings or of other kinds of people can challenge our sense of self. But to do it demands a kind of softness, right? An energy of a willingness to make friends with ourselves and a willingness to make fools of ourselves. And that's the real challenge, the willingness to make fools of ourselves. Um, Avram Kalisker, who was a Hasidic Rebbe, um, it's reported that his students and him used to do somersaults, right? And apparently the idea was something like, I already made myself look like an idiot in front of everybody. <laughs> now I don't have to worry about it, right? <laughs> now I can just like let it go, I can do whatever, I can experiment, I can yell during prayer, like whatever I need to do, I already did it. I did somersaults in the street in front of everybody, right? And they would do the term in Yiddish was unterzich, uh, literally turning yourself over. Right, to turn yourself over. That idea of it's like, oh, let go of all that worry about what are people thinking, who am I going to be, and they're not going to take me seriously. It's like, let it all out, and then there's that place of freedom. Like, how great would it be if you weren't worried at all about whether people thought you were being foolish, silly, inappropriate? What if you didn't worry about that at all? Right? How much freedom would there be in that? Not worrying about that at all. It's interesting, the same um, professor who was, who was uh, giving this presentation on imagination said, and I'm sort of trying to think about it, but there's something to this. He said, our words for imagination, there are so many negative words for imagination. Fantasy, delusion, illusion, etc., right? And so few, like, necessarily positive words, right? It's like, how do we think about that whole process of imagination? Um, this Muli Lahad, his name, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about him other than I heard him speak at this conference. <laughs> and so play, just what we've been talking about, is in the same sense, the sense of trust is a deep activity of non-repression. Right? It's the opposite of repression. <laughs> it's letting whatever wants to come out, come out, and letting it come out, and letting it come out, and letting it come out. 
And we, we know that, actually. Because if you play with a kid, one of the wonderful things about playing with kids is that it enables you to do that, because you're sort of allowed to do that. But, like, you know someone's being a totally awkward adult and not really playing with a kid <laughs> when they're, like, holding themselves, right? They're not just going with it. They're like, oh, is that appropriate? Is that appropriate? And I said, right? Like, you can totally see it. And if they're really playing, then they're just, right? They're just playing. They're just playing. They don't have to worry about the, bar- the barriers, the boundaries, the rules. And so when we play, we give up control. It's one of the amazing things about play. We give up control. We surrender to the game, right? We leave aside the rules we normally go by, and we open to this place of creativity. Rav Tzadaka Cohen said, on the same discussion, the Gemara of Milta de Bidichuta, said that the reason Rabbi did it is that She'al mitrachev halev. Through this process, the heart is widened, right? The heart is widened. And that's so important because that willingness to trust, to be vulnerable, really allows our hearts to widen. It allows that widening of the heart, which allows that deeper connection. I read a, um, a great book, which I think, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned before, called Expecting Adam, which is by an author called Martha Beck who was, she and her husband were like Harvard graduate students and then fed, and they were all kinds of things. And she was um, pregnant with a child with, I think with Down syndrome, I can't remember, um, some kind of developmental disability. And um, she had all these crazy experiences and really went through a complete transformation in the process of being pregnant with and then having uh, this child whose name was Adam. That's the book name, Expecting Adam. Um, so at one point, <laughs> She goes to see this person, Mrs. Ross, who sometimes get messages from people across the veil, right? And she's like, some friend has sent her to this. She's like totally wigged out. She's like, I don't do this. <laughs> I don't see people who get messages from people across the veil, right? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here, right? But for some reason, she ends up there. And still in the book, it's a very interesting book. It's not like she's very skeptical of all these things, but like, there's been a whole exploration she goes through. And Mrs. Ross tells her, he says that he's been watching you, this fetus, right? He says that he's been watching you very closely from both sides of the veil. He says that you shouldn't be so worried. He says you'll never be hurt as much by being open as you have been hurt by remaining closed. It's pretty amazing. You'll never be hurt as much by being open as you have been hurt by remaining closed. And there's a tremendous wisdom in that, wherever it came from. We protect ourselves. We don't want to play. We don't want to open. We don't want to experiment with being somebody else because we're so scared of being hurt. We're so scared of being a fool and being laughed at and being told off and being not respected and being ashamed. And we hurt ourselves so badly when we do that. We hurt ourselves and we close down and we shut off. And so these moments of play and the play of the practice itself and those moments of opening and trust and vulnerability is this wonderful opportunity to start to heal those hurts and face that demon we fear. And the healing is actually can be quite concrete. Again, in the same talk I went to by Mulu Lahad, 
there's a study that was looking at PTSD, trauma and PTSD, and was asking the question, what are the factors that cause trauma to turn into PTSD? Because not every person who experiences trauma necessarily experiences PTSD. So what are, what are the risk factors? And one of the risk factors they found was the amount of imagination in people's lives. So people who had more imagination in their lives, and they had various different ways they were measuring it, but like reading fiction, and I don't remember the, the list of different things that they were measuring that they had people answer about, different things they were doing. But something about having imagination be more active in their lives helped prevent trauma from turning into PTSD. It's very interesting. Something about them enabling them to process that event in a certain way, have another reality to work with it. I don't know, and, and he also wasn't clear, he wasn't clear yet you know, exactly how that works. But it's quite shocking, that kind of concrete detail, you know, that that imagination actually helps that process somehow happen, so they're not stuck in this process of post-traumatic stress. And so this playfulness is also about that sense of kind of, of experimentation and our widening, the widening of our gaze, seeing what's out there. And that way it's interestingly connected, I read an article a while ago, um, to the question of luck. So you sort of think about luck, or being lucky or unlucky. So how are we lucky or unlucky? So there's a professor at um, University of Hertfordshire, Richard Wiseman, who has been a psychologist who's been studying luck. And he did an experiment where he gave lucky and unlucky people a newspaper and asked them to look through it and tell him how many photographs there were. On average, the unlucky people took about two minutes to count the photographs, where the lucky people took just seconds. Why? Because the second page of the newspaper contained a huge message which said, stop counting, there are 43 photographs in this newspaper, right? <laughs> It was staring everyone straight in the face, but somehow only the lucky people tended to see it. How right? they identified Their own self-description. Self yeah, they, they had to say whether they thought they were lucky or unlucky coming into the experiment, right? Yeah. And then he placed a second message halfway through the newspaper, which said, stop counting, tell the experimenter you've seen this, and win 250 pounds, right? <laughs> and again, the unlucky people missed it because they were too busy looking for the photographs. And he compares this to another personality test that apparently has been done at other times that shows that anxiety disrupts, disrupts a people to no, people's ability to notice the unexpected. There's an experiment they did where there are um, a moving dot in the center of the screen that you're supposed to follow, and unexpectedly large dots would appear at other places. And um, they ask you at the end of the experiment whether you notice the large dots. And First of all, lucky people tend to notice the large dots more than the unlucky. Merge. Notice the large dots, sorry. And if they created more anxiety in the experiment, like saying, if you keep your eye on the small dot the whole time, you'll get $1,000, right? Then people tended to notice the large dots even less. And it's interesting that sort of, that balance or just movement 
what we would call kind of mindfulness and concentration. Right? We cultivate concentration in the practice so we can have a steady mind. But that's not our goal. Our goal isn't just to be with that one dot in the center. Our goal is actually to have that wide consciousness of mindfulness which sees, sees when things arise, which sees when things arise. It's like, oh, large dot, interesting, right? <laughs> sees when things arise. Oh, there's a message telling me stop counting, right? Whatever it is, we see when things arise. And what he concluded from this study is that it's the same thing with luck, actually. Unlucky people miss opportunities because they're too focused on looking for something else. They're too goal-directed. They want a particular thing to happen. They go to parties intent on finding the perfect partner and so miss opportunities to make friends. They look through newspapers determined to find a certain type of job, and so they miss other types of jobs. But lucky people are more relaxed and open, and therefore they see more opportunities. So then he did a second experiment, which he wondered if he could create principles of luckiness and create a luck school. Have people come, have to take a certain amount of time, follow his instructions, and see in their own self-reporting, did they feel lucky or not after he had them follow these certain instructions. So they spent a month, a group of volunteers, both lucky and ugly, carrying out the exercises that he gave them. One month later, they returned, and the results were that 80% of people reported being happier and more satisfied with their lives and luckier. While lucky people became luckier, the unlucky had become lucky. <laughs> Take Carolyn, he says, who she talked about at the beginning of the article. After graduating from luck school, she passed her driving test after three years of trying and was no longer accident-prone and became more confident. So he said, what are the three things he learned from doing this luck school? What are, what are the three things that have worked? He said, first was that unlucky people fail to follow their intuition. And lucky people tend to follow their intuition. Unlucky people second-guess themselves, want to follow rules. And lucky people tend to follow their gut reaction, which says, this seems right or this seems wrong. Unlucky people tend to be creatures of routine. Right? They do the same thing each time. They take the same, two route, same route to work, talk to the same people at parties, etc. In contrast, lucky people tend to introduce variety into their lives. For instance, one person described... I think this is great. He thought of a color before arriving at a party and then introduced himself to people wearing that color. <laughs> Isn't that good? This kind of behavior boosts the likelihood of chance opportunities by introducing a variety. And that, I think, is really the key place for me, at least what we're talking about, which is it's, that, it's the widening of the gaze. Instead of focusing the gaze down, the one goal, the one routine, it's like, can we widen the gaze a little bit to see what are the opportunities that are arising? What are the opportunities that are arising? And finally, lucky people tend to see the positive side of their um, ill fortune. For instance, one lucky volunteer arrived with his leg in a cast and described how he'd fallen down a flight of stairs. And he asked him whether he still felt lucky. And he said he felt luckier than before. He could have broken his neck. <laughs> Right? So just that question of how do we frame, how do we frame the experience? And for me, that's so connected to play. It's that openness, the intuition, play is following that gut instinct. It's not having routines, right? Play is, is playing outside the rules, outside the box. Like, oh, no, I normally do this. Maybe I'm just going to do something else right now. 
it's change, right? It's willingness to try something new. It's willingness to see something a little bit wider. It's the willingness to follow our gut rather than our adult brain, right? Something that's like, don't do that. It's like, yeah, I'm going to do that maybe, right? To jump, to leap, sometimes without even looking, right? And to see where we land. And the wonder that's present sometimes and the majesty in that moment. So we're going to pause there for today. Um, Next time we're going to talk more about play. We're going to talk about uh, play, various elements, the self, judgment, uh, beginner's mind. Um, And as normal now, we're opening up to thoughts, questions, comments, experiences. Myself, that it can become very routine. Just well, I do this every day. Sit for twenty minutes, get it over with. Something brushing your teeth. Yeah. Loses its. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. <clears throat> I think the first piece, exactly was just shared with us, which is curiosity. First piece is curiosity. It's like, can I actually be, sit down, can try and just cultivate that sense of, oh, what's going to happen now? Instead of thinking like, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to sit here, breath, mind's going to go up, breath, mind's going to go up, right? (laughs) Right? It's like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen, you know? Can we just have a little bit of that, and that's really that sense of playfulness. It's like, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what's going to happen. And just that small switch sometimes can really open things up. You know, that sense of I'm, I'm exploring. It's like being an explorer of our own yeah. experience, of our own self, you know? So it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to explore now. I'm going to explore now. 
That's one piece. Another piece which is also very effective and, and in some ways connected, slightly different from this, is it can be helpful to set an intention. And that intention can be anything and it can change day to day. It's often helpful if it changes day to day. But whatever you want your intention to be that morning, it's like, may I wake up this morning? Or may I touch compassion this morning? Or maybe I see what's underneath this morning? Or whatever it is, or that if, you know, whenever you're doing meditation, it does help to just, especially I feel like sometimes when I'm, when I'm getting routinized and I'm just feeling like I'm getting lost, I'll just stop in the middle of my practice. In the middle of meditating, I'll just stop and like, okay, why am I doing this? You know, like, why am I doing this, right? It's like, oh, right, that's why I'm doing it. Okay, good, right? So, like, set your intention and come back with that sense of I know what the intention is now. <clears throat> it's also helpful sometimes to um, shift it up. Like, don't use the same anchor all the time. You use the breath, change your anchor. Use sound. Use the feeling of your butt on the cushion. You know what I mean? Use something else. So you can do cycling, which is interesting as well, which is to cycle between anchors. I don't know if people have done that. So like, you'll start with like three breaths on breath, then three breaths on sound, then three breaths on the physical experience of the body. It's just a different experience. There's no better or worse. And so it just helps sometimes to sort of jump us out of a pattern. You know, we get stuck in a pattern, so it's good. Try something else. See what helps. Sometimes it can help, you know, if you sit all the time, stand. You know, do meditation while standing. Great. Anything to sort of, you know, if, you're, if you got into a rut, anything to just kind of change it. So all of when your mind isn't like, your mind in good ways and bad ways. Like there are good ways that I sit down on the cushion, my mind is like, oh, okay, going to try and focus and be mindful now. And that's sort of the good part of the routine. But there's the bad part too, which is something that you can just be like, breath, get distracted, right? <laughs> you can have that just, so it's like anything we can do to just shake that up a little bit and shake it out of its routine. Yeah. Breath, you've often talked about staying with that insight. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In the sense of both really important, important to do at different moments. Mm -hmm. You know, it just it's a question of what's beneficial and helpful right now. There isn't an answer of how to work with distraction, whatever that is that's coming up. Sometimes it's skillful to say, oh, distraction, I'm gonna come back. Certainly as you're starting the practice and starting to just develop your concentration, it's very helpful to do that. Sometimes it's helpful to say, oh, coming up, let's explore. One of my general rules of thumb, I'll say, is first response is notice, come back. If it comes up a number of times, then I say turn towards, it's actually something that's calling for attention. But that isn't always necessarily right either. Right? So there isn't, a, there isn't a set and fast rule. It also depends sometimes on, on how you're practicing, and, and that can be okay too. For instance, you might notice there's a lot of distraction happening, and I really want to try to focus on the anchor right now. So you're trying to cultivate concentration. So if you're cultivating concentration, then you want to come back, come back, come back. And that's, that might be your decision that day or even that month or that year, and that's great. You might be really trying to cultivate open awareness. So you're trying to cultivate open awareness sometimes, for instance, often when I'm practicing with open awareness, I'm not even using an anchor at all. And there's no anchor. I'm not with the breath. I'm just trying to be present. Choiceless. It's just like present. Arising, 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 arising. There's no object of concentration, right? So it's just... And sometimes you choose a topic. Yes, too. yeah. So it's just, it's, a, it's, it's just on what's going to be beneficial and what's going to help you be present at that moment. Are those the three things then? An anchor, open awareness, a topic you want to work on? 
What do you mean a topic you want to work on? Well, sometimes you say that, that you spent periods of time dealing with anxiety. Ah, okay, but so that's important. When I've spent periods of time doing that, it's not because I've chosen to work with anxiety, because that's what's coming up. <laughs> right? So it's, no, it's just like that comes up day after day after day. It was like, oh, hello again, anxiety, right? <laughs> that's what's happening present in my life. And then at some point it'll pass. Topic, that's right. And is there anything else? Um, I mean, you know, basically the basic choices are having an anchor and not having an anchor. That's sort of the, you know, those are the choices. With the anchors, there can be multiple possibilities. That's all when we're working in kind of the mindfulness realm. There are, of course, then concentration practices we do, like the blessing practice, like the loving kindness practice, which is cultivate a certain quality. Having said that, I should add one other piece, which is that even sometimes too in mindfulness, there are things we do, so I would say it's important not to sort of choose a topic, but to help us explore a little deeper something that's arisen. So something like something will arise and pass, but some part of us will know it's still present, and we need to ask something like, what's underneath? You know, we can feel that there's something happening underneath, that we're sort of touching the surface layer of it, there's something else happening. But it's important whenever we do those things that they're always an invitation. It's never like, I'm going to work with this now, because it just doesn't work, right? <laughs> you can't tell the mind what to work with. You can invite it and see if it's like, oh, yeah, actually, I'm quite interested in coming up and, and being with you at the moment. And it may be and it may not be. And you can do that also even sometimes if there is something that's sort of very present for you, that's difficult that's happening in your life right now, and you're meditating, that's sort of not happening or something's feeling blocked. It's okay to bring that thing to mind and sort of invite it. But again, it's always an invitation. You know, and then it may come and it may be a valuable part of your practice and it may not, or it may not be ready to come up or whatever the case is. Um, I am a woman of routine. I love it. I love routine. Um, and Me too. I also, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put it out there. Love routine. I also really have reaped benefits from it. Do yoga again, or if I if I don't do yoga this one morning, that was just 
oh, well, I've totally fallen apart and it's all gonna go and I've lost control. And there's this sense of like, well, if I, if I don't do it, then it, I'm gonna lose it all together, that I'm gonna not even find my way back to the past. Right. Um, but I also know that it's so, in, in my ex being willing to leave, we're experimenting with leaving for a little while, um, I have come back. And uh, so I, I don't know, I just wanted to share that, that that seems to be like a fear we might face. Um, just feeling like if we leave that one time, then, then we'll lose the practice altogether. Mm. But like if you skip Shabbat one time, like you'll never get yeah. So that's great. I mean, that's great insight. First of all, to notice that discipline is really important and helpful. Yes, it is. No, it's not a problem. That's great, right? Second, to notice the thoughts you're having, and as you said, they're not true because you've already had the experience, <laughs> right? Like you know, actually, that you left and you've come back. So you know they're not true. I mean, it's okay. I know that, like. Maybe you know they're not true, but no, I really think they're true. I know, but like, right? But it's like, you could just see for a moment, it's like, oh, that's not really necessarily true, is it? Because I know I've had this experience. And then, of course, what's really valuable there is like, oh, fear. Don't even worry about leaving the path, not leaving the path. How about just working with the fear of leaving the path? That's quite valuable. It's like, oh, that's a genuine experience. There's fear here. There's uncertainty. I don't know what's happening here. There's loss of control. Is my discipline about control? What's my relationship to control? Oh, I can work with it now. I can explore it, right? So that's, I really want to point that out because I think so often it's like, you know, just the way Kajra, in a great way, sharing like fear, decision, what should the decision be make? And actually where we need to focus is not on like whether you need to be disciplined or not disciplined. <laughs> it's like what you need to focus on is what that just, made you see, which is, oh, fear around being disciplined or not disciplined. It's like, great, that's what your practice is. Don't even worry about the other stuff, right? <laughs> just like come back to that fear and that sense of control. And the last thing to just say mention in there, which is important, is that as with all these things, it's important to sort of know yourself. So like I identify with you, I'm very disciplined, right? I've like been meditating pretty much every day for, you know, since I started, like 15 years ago, right? <laughs> That's it, every day. Um, and people are different. Like, Debbie, my wife, pretty undisciplined, right? <laughs> so for me, it's like, I can probably err on the side of, you know, experimenting and moving out because I'm probably going to come back, right? <laughs> like, that's what I do, right? <laughs> and so if you're that kind of person, then you can probably err on that side. And if you're the kind of person who's like, things are all over the place, you can't make a plan, and I think they're like, probably you should start trying to err on the side of creating a little bit of discipline, a little bit of structure and having a practice, right? So that's also just figuring out personally what's, what's going to work for you given wherever you are right now in your sort of personality structure and discipline, etc. Right? So let's sit for five minutes.